tonight. Please go ahead and grab your Bibles with me and turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this morning we are going to return to verse 1 of this chapter, and we're going to study the whole chapter. And friends, it is a hard passage of Scripture. It is a difficult passage, but it is very important for us as a local church family. And so let's begin in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, what do you think is the most well-known Bible verse in the world? Many people would say John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, and that is indeed very popular, but it might actually be true that in our day, a more well-known verse is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Isn't that right? That, that verse is like the holy grail of verses in our day. Why? Because none of us want others to look at us and to make judgments about us. We all want our space and freedom to live our lives without anyone else making judgment about whether we are living wisely or in a godly way or not. To judge someone else is perhaps the greatest of all evils in our day. It is the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. Our culture says, you live your life, I'm going to live mine, and let's not judge each other for the decisions that we make along the way. That, that sounds good. 
And friends, God certainly does not intend for his people to spend their days always making ungodly and self-righteous and uncharitable judgments against each other. We, We are called by God to have godly charity towards one another, to forbear, and to be patient with one another, even with each other's weakness and sin. A church that is nitpicky about each other's weaknesses and sin is never going to be a holy or happy church. Self-righteousness and sinful pride towards one another is not a good thing. But does that mean that we should never judge each other? Here's the question for us this morning. Does God ever command us to make godly judgment against each other within the local church? Is it ever a godly thing to judge fellow Christians? Now, Paul actually says in chapter 2 that the spiritual person is to be judged by no one. But does that mean that as a Christian, we now live in a no-judgment zone and that no one has the right to speak a loving criticism or a godly correction into our lives? Well, friends, according to our text today, that is emphatically not what God says to us. Not only is is judgment supposed to be a regular part of our life together as Christians? It is actually supposed to be a characteristic mark of a God-honoring, Christ-exalting local church family. And that, that sounds horrible to our natural ears, but it is actually one of God's greatest gifts to us as Christians. God's Word says that we need godly judgment in our life and that we should want to be a part of a local church family that makes it their ambition to offer godly and Christ-like judgment about sin in our lives. This is not something that we should call foul on and run away from, but rather something that we should affirm and welcome eagerly. The main idea for our message today is this. It's a little long, so if we could leave it up a little bit extra, that might be helpful. The local church is called by God to make godly judgment about sin so that it might walk in the joy of sincerity and truth together. The the local church is called by God to make godly judgment about sin so that it might walk in the joy of sincerity and truth together. We have three points Number one, the problem of arrogant sinfulness. Point number two, the practice of godly judgment. And point number three, the joy of sincerity and truth. Let's begin with point number one, the problem of arrogant sinfulness. If you remember, in chapters one to four, Paul has spoken primarily about the need for unity within the body of Christ and the need to live according to the wisdom of the cross rather than to the wisdom of the world. But now, in chapter five, he begins to expand the implications and the applications of these truths. And the first thing that he speaks to is the Corinthians' arrogant assumption that sin is not a big deal in their lives. Paul has major concern for the Corinthian church, and his concern centers on the fact that they believe that they have attained a a level of spiritual maturity that makes them immune to the effects of sin. They arrogantly assume that sin does not matter in their lives and that it can go unaddressed. You have already heard me say in our study of this letter that the Corinthian church had an over-realized eschatology. 
And what that means practically is that they had convinced themselves that the victory of Christ in their lives and the the promises of God about the future could be fully realized right here and right now. That that they could live like kings even as they would in heaven, chapter 4, verse 8. That all things were lawful for them, chapter 6, verse 12. They believed that the the promises of heaven and the the future promise of of freedom from sin in the new heavens and the new earth, the Corinthians were trying to act as if they could live out those future realities right here and right now. They, They were taking the future promises of victory in heaven, which are true and assured. They were saying that because of those future promises, they were like Teflon Christians now that sin could not touch them, that that sin would just bounce off of them, that they could live however they wanted to live because they were victorious in Christ. That they were claiming that practical holiness didn't matter because they were positionally accepted before God. Look at verse one. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. It seems like the Corinthians were proud of their ability to tolerate sin, to welcome sin into their midst. Sin that he says even the pagans would have judged as unwise and unhelpful. And now, listen church, Paul speaks very seriously about sin in this letter. He highlights one sin here, a report of a man sleeping with his stepmom, but that is not the only sin that he speaks of. He speaks of greed, he speaks of thievery, he speaks of sexual immorality of all kinds, including adultery and homosexuality. He talks about drunkenness. And as he, as he says that, that we should remove the evil person from among us, I think a lot of us might start squirming in our seats a little bit, right? We, we might start thinking, well, hey, my mind has not been perfectly pure this week. And Jesus said that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful desires has already committed adultery with her. Should I be removed from the church? We've all been proud this week. We've all made mistakes. Maybe you drank too much just last night. Does that mean that you're a drunkard and that you need to be removed from the church? Well, friends, it needs to be said that all sin on every level is bad and needs to be repented of. And we're actually going to talk a lot about different specific sins throughout this series. Next month, in the month of May, we're going to have a whole message on the topic of greed. We're going to have a whole message on the topic of drunkenness. We're going to have a whole message on the topic of homosexuality and gender issues in our day. All of these things are important to discuss from God's word, and we should care about holiness in all of them. But listen, there is a lot in our text today to suggest that Paul's concern is not just with the ongoing struggle with sin that every Christian deals with on a daily basis. Paul is not concerned that there's still marks of weakness and sinfulness in our lives. He knows that we will battle sin until the day we get to see Jesus face to face. The the Christian life is a battleground for holiness. And Paul is not suggesting that we should have perfect victory in that battle already. But listen, what he is suggesting is that we should care a lot about the battle. And that we should be waging war against sin in our lives, wherever and however we can. 
We, we should care about these things, and we should care even more about people within the church who are arrogantly indifferent to sin, who don't care about sin. Not only indifferent, but, but proud about their ability to sin and get away with it. The, the reason he highlights this man sleeping with his stepmom is not because that's the only example of sin that mattered, but because it is an extreme example and it seems to reveal how proud and how complacent they had become about their sin. That they were bragging about their ability to welcome all kinds of sin into their midst and to not care about it at all. The issue here is their arrogance. And we know that's the issue because Paul calls them arrogant so many times. Look up in chapter 4, verse 18. He says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Verse 19, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. And you are arrogant. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. And then it continues from there. Church, the issue is not just the daily struggle with sin itself that we all deal with, but the arrogant assumption on their part, maybe on our parts, even the, the boasting on our part that sin is not a big deal and that we can actually, we are, we are more mature if we are unaffected by the, the weight of sin. But look at what Paul says in verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? Ought you not rather to mourn? Paul says the right response to sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, is not to celebrate your ability to get away with it or to tolerate it, but rather the right response to mourn, to grieve over your sin, to weep over it, to hate sin in your life and its ongoing presence in your life. That's the right response to sin, Paul says. No matter how big or small, grieve its presence in your life and long for the day when you are fully victorious over it. But to live as if you're fully victorious already and don't deal with these things now that's just silliness paul says have you ever heard of the illustration about the difference between d-day and v-day in world war ii so in world war ii d-day was a term that was used to describe the launch of a mission into normandy and d-day was the decisive turning point in that long war from that point on, from the point of D-Day on, there was a, a turning in the war and Hitler and his powers began to be defeated. It was the beginning of the end. But D-Day wasn't V-Day, church. D-Day wasn't full victory. There was still a lot of fighting that needed to happen before their weapons could be laid down. The enemy was defeated on one level, but there was much more that needed to happen before full victory could be enjoyed. And folks, how? foolish would it have been if after D-Day all of the Allied soldiers arrogantly pronounced full victory and put down their arms and began to make friends with the enemy? How dangerous, how catastrophic would that have been? Folks, that is exactly what the Corinthians and that is exactly what many of us do as well. We celebrate the victory of Christ over the grave. Amen. And we celebrate the inevitable victory that will come to our lives on the final day. But we oftentimes wrongly assume that that victory is to be experienced fully today and that there are no more dangers in our lives or in our hearts to deal with. And we put down our arms. We stop fighting against sin and death. No, church. 
No, that is not who we are called to be. V-Day doesn't happen until heaven. V-Day's coming and we can't wait. But until that day, we are called to put to death what is earthly in us. We are called to fight the battle that is still waging in our souls. We are called to not become lazily arrogant in the fight, but we are called to allow the Spirit to infuse our lives with the power of the resurrection so that we might live holy lives for His glory. 2 Peter chapter 1 says that because of His divine power, we are now able to make every effort towards holiness. In this text, Paul is highlighting the tendency of our hearts to become complacent and to become arrogant towards sin and to actually begin to presume upon God's grace to the degree that we no longer grieve over sin. And Redeemer family, we must admit that this is not just true of the Corinthian church. This is true of us as well. How often do we assume that sin is not a big deal? How often do we arrogantly boast through our actions and our lack of obedience that we can claim to be a Christian and still live however our flesh wants to live? How often do we celebrate rather than mourn sin in our lives? Church, may we not boast in sin. May we tirelessly put sin to death in our lives. May we wage war against the enemy. And, Lord, please... May we love each other well enough that we seek to help each other to do this well. May we not turn away from sin in each other's lives, but rather lovingly, humbly, gently, courageously help each other to live in the holiness that God has called us to live in. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, the the practice of godly judgment. The practice of godly judgments. Folks, the very word judgment makes us want to cringe today, doesn't it? I don't know if you've ever watched professional soccer or not, but if you have, you've probably noticed how dramatic the players can be, right? They want the referee to call a foul against the other team, and so if they are so much as touched, they flail their arms, they'll fall on the ground, they'll hold their leg in agony when when there's really nothing wrong. Church, that can often be like what we do when we start talking about judgment within the church. (laughs) The very word judgment makes us want to fall to the ground and call foul. No, how dare we judge each other? This is my life. That's your life. When when it comes to judgment, let's not enter into that at all. We're very quick to call foul. But, But is judgment in the church really a foul? Or is it a godly practice that we should pursue in a loving way together by God's grace? Church, this text in 1 Corinthians 5 is perhaps the primary text in the whole New Testament where we see the application of restorative discipline or church discipline or excommunication as some people call it. And I say that it's the primary text where we see the application of discipline because it is not the primary text where we see the idea of discipline first put forward. No, for that we have to go to Jesus himself. For that we need to go to Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus talks to his disciples about what to do if a Christian, if a brother or sister in the church is living in bold and unrepentant sin. Are you familiar with Matthew 18? 
In Matthew 18, Jesus says to his disciples that if your brother or sister is living in sin, to go to him and to tell him his fault. Folks, listen, that itself, the first line, is an expression of judgment. We we are talking about each other's sin. And then Jesus says, go and talk to your brother about his sin. If he listens, you have gained your brother, praise God. But if he does not listen, listen to what Jesus says. Take one or two others along with you that every charge or every judgment may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, So Jesus says that godly judgment within the church is oftentimes a group project. If the person refuses to listen to that group, then Jesus says, tell it to the church. Oh, man. That definitely doesn't sound like godly judgment. We're going to tell it to the church now? But then not just that. Then Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, make a judgment about their profession of faith and remove them from the church family and consider them a non-Christian. Those are Jesus' words. And this is what 1 Corinthians 5 is based on. If that's not judgment, folks, I don't know what is. Friends, Jesus is calling us to judge each other, to to lovingly speak truth to each other. Redeemer Fellowship, we are unmistakably called by God in his word to love one another well, to love one another sincerely by correcting each other, by exhorting one another, by holding each other accountable to our profession of faith. This is part of what it means to be a Christian in the church today. Listen to these verses from throughout the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Galatians chapter 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. James chapter 5, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God's word tells us to make judgment about each other. Now, Redeemer family, this is not us being nitpicky. Uh, We should exhort each other every day to flee from all sin, but this does not mean that the burden of this text invites us to be endlessly dissecting each other's lives, making a big deal about every weakness and every sin that we see. We we should exhort each other to holiness, and, and to some degree that should apply to all sin in our lives. But that is most often going to happen through encouragement and gentle exhortation and through prayer for each other. The burden of this text has to do with big brazen, arrogant sinfulness that is a clear contradiction to someone's profession of faith in Christ. These are the things that we're called to consider as a church family and to pastor people through as a church. Now why? Why did Jesus tell us to lovingly judge one another and to speak truth into each other's lives? Well, 1 Corinthians 5 helps us to understand why. Verses 1 to 2 speak of the issue of, of arrogant sinfulness. So Paul is addressing arrogant, brazen, public, publicly known sinfulness. All, all sin is bad, 
But Paul is not addressing every daily struggle that we have. He is addressing members of the church who not only don't care about sin, but who are persistently pursuing and practicing sin in their life in an open way. And Paul says in verse 3, Though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul says here, even though I'm not physically there yet, my spirit and my God-given authority is still present, and you should act accordingly. You should act like you are supposed to act as a local church. And how are they supposed to act? Look at verse 4. When you are assembled, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. All right, what does Paul mean by that? How are we delivering a person over to Satan? What Paul says here is very consistent with what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Jesus says in Matthew 18 that if a brother or sister refuses to listen, you are to consider them a Gentile and a tax collector. Or in other words, you are to consider them an outsider. You are to no longer view them as a Christian because a true Christian would not be living arrogantly in their sin. And so when Paul says you are to deliver this man to Satan, all he means is that you are to remove him from the covenant community of God's grace. You are to view him as an outsider. You are to view him as one who is still in the domain of darkness. But now what what is all of this for? Are we just supposed to practice church discipline so that we can feel better about ourselves as we judge those around us? Yeah, you're not good enough, and you're not good enough, and you're not good enough. Are we just being heavy-handed in our leadership when we do all of this as church leaders and as pastors? No. Look at verse 5. Paul says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And this is so important to highlight today. This is why we practice godly judgment through restorative discipline. We do not do this only to make people feel bad or to make ourselves feel better. No, we do this because we know that our hearts are deceitful, church, and that we are able often to claim to love Jesus while actively contradicting that claim with our sinful lives. And and ultimately, God's word says we need others to come to us and to highlight our sin for us so that we might repent and begin to live consistently Consistent with our profession of faith in Christ. But the goal is that our spirits may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is what church discipline is, is all about. And this is why I don't even like the term church discipline. I strongly prefer the term restorative discipline. Why? Because the whole point is to restore the wandering brother or sister back to the Lord. Jesus says he'll leave the 99 to go after the one. Jesus says in Matthew 18 that if he listens to you, you have gained your brother back and that's what we're after, church family. This is godly judgment and this is what we should all pursue together. This is what we should all pursue together on the regular. It's not always the big issues, but if you see a sin in my life, I hope you don't wait till it's a big issue to come to me and say, Joel, turn away from that, repent and live for Jesus in greater ways. When we talk about restorative discipline, When we talk about it in the Explore class, uh, which we often do, I, I always talk about how I have seen God use this work in people's lives many, many times. I, I will never forget one situation when I was a pastor back at Covenant Fellowship. There was a brother in the church who asked to meet with me and Jason, 
And he said to us, he started the meeting this way. He said, guys, I want you to know that I am living in sexual immorality with a woman who is not my wife, and I'm not going to change. He said, this feels good and right to me, and I don't think that God would ask me to stop. And so you can say whatever you want to say, but nothing is going to change. And I remember sitting there in my office and, and looking across at Jason and us both being just stunned, stunned by his boldness, stunned by how indifferent he was to God's word. He seemed so cold and callous in his sin. He was completely indifferent to conviction. And Jason and I pleaded with him. We pleaded with him to turn from his sin and to live in purity for the Lord. But he just said, yep, I knew you were going to judge me, but it doesn't change anything. And that was pretty much the end of the meeting. And friends, in a situation like that, you don't immediately move towards church discipline. Restorative discipline is, it takes a long time. It's, it's very relationally driven. It's, it's a process. It's not just, boom, you're done. But we did let him know in that moment that we were not going to let him remain in his sin without having his church family lovingly pursue him. And so Jason and I met with him at least one more time and then we talked to other brothers in the church who knew this man and who loved him dearly and they all asked him out to lunch at different time, times and they pleaded with him to repent of his sin and to live for Jesus again. Church, I'll never forget how a few months later he set up a meeting with us again and he was a completely different man. He, he was no longer cold and callous. He was meek and humble. And he started that meeting by saying, guys, I need to apologize to you. I was living in sin and I was wrongly resisting your correction. I am sorry for ignoring you and living out my sinful desires. And I remember again looking at, across the room at Jason with like, what has happened here? How did this come about? And we asked him, we said, well, what's made the difference? And he said, I never knew the church would come after me like they did. He said, I didn't know that brothers in this church cared enough to come after me, to, to take me to lunch, and to correct me boldly. And he said, when they did, I, I didn't feel threatened. I didn't feel judged. I felt loved. And God used it to soften my heart, to lead me towards repentance. Church, that's 1 Corinthians 5 in action. We lovingly judge unrepented sin. Why? So that our spirits may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the Lord might wake us up from our stupor and remind us of our need to live holy lives before him because Jesus said a tree is known by the fruit that it bears. And so let's help each other to bear that fruit. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want this sort of godly judgment in my life. I need this in my life. I know how weak I am. I know that my heart is deceitful. I know that the devil is like a lion prowling around waiting to devour. I know that I need the help of brothers and sisters and a whole church family to hold me accountable to my profession of faith, to exhort me. Friend, please exhort me. To correct me, please correct me. To lovingly judge me if you see sin in my life. I need that and Christians, so do you. Friends, can I just say that this is one of the reasons why we care so much about church membership here at Redeemer Fellowship. We're not interested in just adding to our membership roster for the sake of numbers. Now, we talk about membership so much, and if you've been attending and you're not a member, you've probably gotten at least one text message from me saying, hey, would you consider membership? We do that, not because we want to add to our numbers, but because there's few things that I feel as strongly about. 
Because you need church membership in your life. Restorative discipline can't effectively be done without church membership, without covenanting to a local family. And so honestly, my soul hurts when I see people who are content to just attend church without official active participation in that church. Because I know that their souls are vulnerable and that there is a means of grace available to them through the local church and how God wants to use the local church in their life and I I know that's not a a great advertising strategy hey come to Redeemer we love to judge each other (laughs) not ideal people don't look for a church based on this conviction but honestly I think that you should every Christian needs to be committed to a local church that is committed to godly judgment such as this why so that our spirits may be saved in the day of the Lord so that we can live in the joy of sincerity and truth together. And that brings us to our third point. Point number three, the joy of sincerity and truth. So, a funny story about this text. Uh, Many of you know that I love to memorize God's word. Uh, I'm actually currently trying to memorize the entire book of 1 Corinthians. You can pray for that. But how I memorize is that I just take one verse or one phrase and just repeat it out loud over and over and over again. And then I'll just add to it progressively. So for instance, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God. 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 Over and over and over again. Then I add, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And it just, it works the, the book into my soul. And I often do this when I'm hiking through the woods, either early in the morning or in the afternoon. And normally, no one is around. And it's a great opportunity to, to do scripture memory for my soul. But I remember when I was memorizing 1 Corinthians 5, and I was working on verse 5 specifically, which says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And so I'm hiking through White Clay State Park, and I am fairly loudly saying, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And then I enunciate different parts. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh over and over again. I said it a lot, and I thought I was alone. But then I came around a bend in the path, and I realized that there was this guy who was walking on a parallel path as me for about 20 minutes. The look on his face, he was legitimately terrified. He, he hurried by me and just went on his way. But church, listen, his look of concern and his look of confusion is a very understandable thing. The world will not understand what we are talking about when we talk about this sort of judgment. The world will not have a category. They will not understand why we value these things the way that we do or why we try to be as present and actively in each other's lives as we do. If the world listens to this sermon today, they will say, yep, I knew it. Those Christians love to judge people. That's what they're all about. This doesn't make sense to the world. And friends, Paul actually highlights this reality. Look, Look at verse nine with me. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, I want you to practice this godly judgment within the local church, not against those outside of the church. But Paul says, if you... 
If you were to separate yourself from everyone in the, in the world who practices these forms of ungodliness, he jokes. He says, you would actually need to go out of the world. You would need to get a space capsule and travel into space. But Paul's saying the point is not to judge and to avoid non-Christians in our lives who are living in their sin. No, Jesus, our Savior and Lord, was a friend of sinners. He ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. The, the world should not feel our judgment. The world should feel our love and our compassion. Oh, Redeemer Fellowship, I hope that we have many friends in each of our lives who are not yet Christians and who are currently living in all kinds of ugly sin, but who we still love because we see God's heart for them and we see them as being made in the image of God. So this will make no sense to the world. It's not supposed to make sense to the world. Church, this is for us. Look at verse 11. Paul says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone, listen, who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he says, Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says this is for those inside the local church family. Restorative discipline and the, the loving correction and the daily exhortation that is supposed to be a pattern in our lives. It's not for your unbelieving coworker. No, don't judge them. Just share the, the hope of the gospel with them. This form of godly judgment is for those who bear the name of brother or sister. For those who call themselves Christians but who are living inconsistent with that name. It is for these that we are to lovingly pursue with correction and godly accountability. In Redeemer Fellowship, there are going to be times, there have already been times in our three and a half years together when we as a church family will have men and women wander away from the Lord and who will we, we will need to pursue and then through process lovingly separate ourselves from. That does not mean that we spite them. It doesn't mean that we never talk to them but it does mean that we don't fellowship with them as fellow Christians. Paul says, not even to eat with such a one. It does mean that the church and the leaders of the church have a responsibility not to allow certain people to partake of the Lord's Supper because the communion meal that we're about to celebrate together is for those who are actively living obedient lives for their Savior. Someone who is under church discipline should not come forward for communion because their life is a contradiction to their profession of faith. That they're not acting as if they're part of the family and so they shouldn't be able to partake in the family meal. They are living in insincerity. They are living in falsehood. That's what Paul's speaking of here. My friends, even while Paul, Paul exhorts us to judge those who are insincere, his heart is for us to be sincere. His heart is for us to live and to flourish in the good of the gospel and the good of his grace, to turn away from every evil and to live sincerely, consistent, truthful lives together in the good of his grace. Look, look at verse 6 to 8 again from last week, which we celebrated the resurrection with. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's heart is for us to flourish, 
to grow, to celebrate our freedom in Christ. Not to celebrate our freedom by engaging in sin, but to celebrate our freedom by fleeing from sin, by living holy lives together. This is what God is calling us to. To know confidently that the stain of sin has been removed from us through the gospel and to live out that glorious reality through our practical living. To live consistent with the hope that we proclaim. To live out of our new identity in Christ rather than the old identity which is sin. This does not mean that we're going to be perfect. No, we're going to stumble but it does mean that we will fight against sin in our lives. It means that we will consistently put on holiness as a sincere and truthful way of demonstrating who we are in Christ. To be consistent with our profession of faith and Redeemer Fellowship. As we do, oh, the world is going to look on. The world is going to look on and, and they're not going to say, man, how arrogant they are, how much they love to judge those around them. No, they're going to look on and they're going to say, wow, these, these people are the real deal. They are consistent to their profession of faith. They didn't just pray a sinner's prayer and then go and live however they want to live, assuming that they are secure. No, they accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and Master, and then they give their entire lives to following him obediently together. And as they watch, Christ will be exalted, the church will be purified, and we will be preserved until that final day. The local church is called by God to make godly judgment about sin so that it might walk in the joy of sincerity and truth together. Amen.